This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, August 7th, 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. Cato Institute Senior Fellow Randall O'Toole believes that individuals should design their existence rather than leave the task to urban planners. At Cato University last week, O'Toole gave attendees a sample of his extensive knowledge of urban planning as a field, a mindset, and a nuisance. This is a portion of his speech. Most urban planners went to school at an urban planning school that is associated with an architecture department. Now, architects tend to have big egos, and those big egos lead them to believe that by shaping people's buildings, they shape people's lives. They love to quote Winston Churchill, who said, we shape our buildings, and then our buildings shape us. Well, urban planners go to the next step. They say, we shape our cities, and then our cities shape us. But the we and the us are different. We, the urban planners, shape our cities, and then our cities shape you, everybody else, is what they really mean. So it's the philosophy of physical determinism. If we can design the city a certain way, people will stop driving, they'll start walking, they'll start bicycling and riding transit, they'll use less energy, they'll emit less greenhouse gas emissions. As uh, Washington Post writer Joel Garreau wrote, planners uh, seem to think that human behavior is malleable and nobody is better equipped by dint of intelligence and education than the planners to do the malleting. They believe that the physical environment they wanted to shape could and would shape society. Well, they can't very well say this in public. So how do planners convince politicians and people to go along with their ideas? Well, they use a technique that is called, in the planning literature, strategic misrepresentation. And usually when they say it in the planning literature, they say strategic misrepresentation, parenthesis, lying. For example, they use a process they call visioning. They'll come to your community and they'll have what they call a charrette. There's actually a national charrette institute that teaches planners to do this. They'll say, we want you to help us decide the future of your community. They put you in a room and they ask you certain questions and you're not allowed to deal with anything else. You're not allowed to deal with anything like cost or cost effectiveness or you know, what the results are going to be. They ask you questions like, Do you want more pollution or less? (laughs) And if you say less pollution, they say, "Uh uh-huh, they want higher densities. Okay, do you want more greenhouse gases or less? Oh, less? Well, then you want higher densities. You want more congestion or less? Well, if you want less, then that, that means you want higher densities. So then they'll go back to the city council and say, the vast majority of the people in this community want higher densities. That's their vision for the future. Now, they write these 50-year visions for cities. Vancouver, B.C. just put out a 50-year vision. Portland has a 50-year vision. And, you know, try imagine writing a vision 50 years ago, or for historical convenience, imagine writing a vision for your city in 1950 that was a vision for what it should look like in the year 2000. Now, in 1950, no one had ever dialed a long-distance phone call. No one had ever direct dialed a long-distance phone call. No one had ever flown in a commercial jet airplane. No one had certainly ever 
programmed a, a, a spreadsheet or used a word processor or ordered anything on the internet. So any plan you wrote for the year 2000, no matter what you wrote, any plan that was written would have one thing in common with every other plan written for the year 2000, and that is it would be wrong. It would get almost everything wrong. You'd probably put a great big train station in the middle of town because everybody's running around on trains in 1950, uh, and you wouldn't put a lot of highways in. You'd certainly have you know, maybe a little tiny airport somewhere, and, uh, and you'd assume that everybody worked downtown and would commute downtown. You wouldn't put any jobs anywhere else except downtown. Today, less than 8% of Americans work downtown. Uh, you couldn't have predicted any of those things, and so your plan would be wrong. And yet, planners today want to write a 50-year vision for the future. So they sit you down, they get you to write your vision, and then they persuade you that your vision is the ideal city, that you'd really love to live in a city like that, and you wouldn't want to risk that the free market might come up with a different solution, would you? So we have to have big government to force our vision on the future. And that's what urban planning is all about. One planner wrote, or a planning advocate, here's his vision. Imagine 1881. You leave the office on Wabash in the heart of vibrant Chicago, hop on a train in a handsome, dignified station full of well-behaved people, and in 30 minutes, you're whisked away to a magnificent house surrounded by deep, cool porches, nestled in a lovely, tranquil, rural setting. This must have been a glorious way to live. But what he doesn't mention that only about 5% of Americans in 1881 could afford to live that way, because transportation was so poor, most Americans had to walk to work. They couldn't afford to take a train. They couldn't afford to take a, a, a streetcar, which in those days were pulled by horses, but still cost too much money for most people to afford. Nobody in the city except for the very wealthy could afford a horse. So pretty much 95% of the, America's urban population was confined to walking to work, which meant they lived in very high-density tenements right next to the factories they worked in, which were very dirty, polluting, and uh, tended to be a lot of uh, uh, disease sweeping through their tenements, tended to be crime, lots and lots of problems. The reason why that is is because trains are really, really expensive. Woo-hoo! Doesn't matter if it's light rail, streetcars, high-speed rail, it's really, really expensive. Let me give you an example. The average American spends 24 cents, uh, 23 cents a passenger mile driving their car. Trains cost over a dollar a passenger mile. Transit, on average, costs 81 cents a passenger mile. That's buses and trains put together. Trains are much more expensive than buses. So over a dollar, four times as expensive. The only reason why Washington Metro Rail works, the only reason why the New York City subway works is because hardly anybody uses them. Only 8% of travel in the New York urban area is by, is by train much smaller in Washington, D.C., and everywhere else. Everybody else gets to pay for it, even though they never use it. If everybody used it, our cities would go, our transit systems would go bankrupt trying to tax everybody enough. Our cities would go bankrupt. We would go bankrupt trying to pay the taxes to keep it going. Uh, a friend of mine has calculated that 
we spend on an average about 8%, 9% of our incomes on transportation. If we relied solely on rail transportation, we would be spending 120% of our incomes on transportation to do the same thing that we get today from the automobile. Randall O'Toole is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and author of the forthcoming Cato book, Gridlock, Why We're Stuck in Traffic and What to Do About It. You can learn more about Cato University at cato.org.